0: Good morning. Thanks again for joining us online here at South Suburban Christian Church. I want to thank all of you for your thoughts, for your prayers, cards, your gifts, uh, your uh, dinners that you brought. Thank you for all of that. Uh, You may have uh, heard or remember last week when Pastor Joe shared that my wife, Shauna, and I have had a new baby, Ian Timothy, and uh, so now we have four running around the house, uh, Isaac, Levi, Annalise Claire, Eleanor Joy, and Ian Timothy. And they love their little brother. I love our new son. And my wife, as soon as she could get some sleep, uh, she can tell you how wonderful it is uh, to have received this gift of God. Have I mentioned that I'm 51 with a newborn? Uh, nevertheless, it has been a blessing. Both Shauna and I want to thank you, thank you, thank you for your love, your support, and uh, your just outpouring of joy on your behalf as well. So, I um, um, also want to thank this morning uh, Ann Griffin. Uh, Ann is uh, going to be our guest musician this morning. Uh, she is actually a neighbor of ours, uh, her son, Noah. And my son Isaac, our best buds, and get them to all kinds of good stuff together throughout the neighborhood, along with the other kids in the neighborhood. And um, as a matter of fact, she was the first person to welcome us to uh, the neighborhood when we moved here a little over 18 months ago, so I'm grateful that Anne is with us. Uh, she and her family are actually going to be guest musicians during this series that Pastor Joe and I are doing, All the Earth Will Shout Your Praise, from Psalm one thirteen three. 3. So with that, let's uh, look at our text for today as we reflect this morning on that old hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. So from 1 Corinthians, uh, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 18, if you have your Bibles with you. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to jews and folly to gentiles but to those who are called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god for the foolishness of god is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of god is stronger than human strength what powerful words to reflect on but yet this next verse Drives it all home. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low boast in the lord and i when i came to you brothers and sisters did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of god with lofty speech or wisdom for i decided to know nothing among you except jesus christ and him crucified here ends the reading of god's holy and perfect word amen January 1st, 1912. It was a leap year. A new nation was established on that day, the Republic of China, ending the 276-year reign of the Qing Dynasty. In April of that year, the white star liner Titanic would sink in the North Atlantic On August 21st, 1912, Arthur R. Eldred became the first Eagle Scout in the United States of America. It was an election year that year. Imagine that, something to relate to. On November 8th, Woodrow Wilson uh, defeated the former president, Theodore Roosevelt, and the incumbent, uh, William Howard Taft, to become the new president and to lead this nation through a significant crisis in just the years ahead. In the opening decades of the 1900s, the Socialist Party of the United States was the fastest-growing political party, with almost one million votes in the 1912 election. The development of the social gospel in the church, or the idea that Christian ethics could be applied to social problems like inequality or poverty, alcoholism, crime, racial tensions education child labor and even war it's ironic with the growth of this influence of the social gospel the world would enter into the first great world war on july 28 1914. the focus of congregations throughout the united states in that year was beginning to shift Previous to that, churches were sort of places where community cohesion was formulated, where there was an understanding of a free practice of faith and that churches were a source of identity for neighborhoods and communities. But in this year, 1912, in that election year, The understanding of the church began to change, and the church began to become a place that engaged in politics and issues of justice. In response to that emphasis, new missionary organizations like the YMCA were founded. Denominations like the Methodist Church and even our own Christian church movement began to engage in gospel meetings and revivals across the nation some appealing to emotionalism like methodism and presbyterianism and others to a more intellectual defense of the faith much like the christian church movement groups like the salvation army tried to walk the middle road of calling people to a saving faith in jesus christ while at the same time seeking to serve the poor and what began to happen was a polarization of the church that Part of the church was interested in making sure we could right social injustices, whereas the other part of the church sought to call people to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This isn't something new that we have just begun to experience. It has been a part of our experiences for over a century now here in the United States. This rapid change in the church back in 1912-1913 As it sought to engage the changes occurring in the United States and around the world, led to a national backlash against Christianity. What began to happen is those that weren't connected with the church began to really reject and repudiate the church. Secularism was on the rise. And in the midst of all of that upheaval within the church and within our own nation, there was a young salvation officer, that's what they call their pastors who had converted to Methodism and was a traveling evangelist. His name, Reverend George Bernard. In December of 1912, he found himself in a little town called Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, preaching a revival at, of all places, a Quaker church, where he was incessantly heckled by a group of youth from that town who had come just to interrupt and make fun of the service and the preacher he was so troubled by this disrespect by this disregard for the gospel this this idea that the youth of his time so hated the church and so despised the gospel that they would cause such a public upheaval not only in the neighborhood in the community but in the very church building itself and as he began to wrestle with this and pray with this He was so troubled that he began to sense the Holy Spirit leading him into an understanding of a connection, a connection between Christ and the cross upon which Christ suffered. In his prayers and his reflection, Bernard was convinced that the preaching of the cross needed to be the centerpiece of the gospel. And as he recorded the experience years later, he says, I seem to have a vision. I saw the Christ and the cross as inseparable. The words of the finished hymn were literally put into my heart in answer to my own need. Well, it took about a month to complete the verses. And in January 1913, the old rugged cross was born. Now, the hymn would go on to create a firestorm. Christians from all denominations would fall in love with it, And musicians and preachers, choir directors, and organists would hate it. Eventually, the famous evangelist, Billy Sunday, would purchase the rights to that hymn, and it became a staple in his gospel meetings, yet further driving a wedge in the divide between Christians over this old hymn. At the time, a new hymn. And yet many churches refused to play the old rugged cross in public worship, Pastors denounced it as having an individualistic understanding of the faith. And even today, people still criticize this hymn because of its theological oversteps. And there might be some points to it in a verse here and there. But this was an era of the rise of higher criticism in the church. And seminaries, colleges, and two sides started picking teams for the fight to come between liberal and fundamentalist Christianity a fight that we still haven't finished even today. Musicians so detested this hymn over its rudimentary and simplistic score, its, its, its lack of ingenuity and in its melody, that they even would stake their very jobs on it. As a matter of fact, there's a newspaper article, a newspaper article, recording a conflict between an organist of a Lutheran church in Pennsylvania. He refused to play this hymn in public worship, and so his congregation dismissed him. They fired him, to which he then sued them. And after some time of of pre-court conversations, the church agreed to pay him a 12-month severance package if he just agreed to leave peacefully. All over this new hymn, the old rugged cross. New worship books and hymnals were being written, and church conventions were fighting over whether or not to include this hymn in their new hymnals. But you see, this is America. We have a heritage of pushing back against authority, even overbearing pastors and organists. And I'll tell you a little bit later how the story ends. Did you know that our New Testament is filled with hymns? We don't always recognize them as such, but we sing some of them during certain seasons, like Christmas and Easter. I could tell you about those later. There are actually three hymns in your New Testament that are and were indeed ancient hymns that the church sang that became a part of Holy Scripture. Philippians, you might want to write this down. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-11, through 11. Colossians 1, verses 15-20, through 20. And John chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Now you've heard me preach about the John text quite a bit. But I want to read two of these to you this morning. First, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6 and reading through verse 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, this passage in Philippians is really written in a psalm fashion. It mimics the way psalms were written. If you go and read the psalms in your Old Testament, you might begin to see some of the similarities. In Psalms, there's always a downward trajectory to the main point, which is in the middle, and then an upward trajectory of why that main point is going to make everything right. And you can see that in this passage. The downward trajectory. He emptied Himself. He became a servant, born in human likeness. And then we get to the very middle of this hymn. The cross, Paul says in Philippians. And after that presentation of the cross, suddenly things begin to change. Suddenly we see words like highly exalted, the name that is above every name. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'd encourage you to commit that passage of Scripture to memory. You can see the importance of the cross even in this ancient hymn you can find in the pages of your New Testament. The other hymn I want to show you is from Colossians chapter 1. Uh, beginning in verse 15, Colossians uh, chapter 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. wow now to the ancient reader or singer as it may have been that would have been real interesting to sing that particular hymn like the first one we read in philippians was based on a psalm pattern this hymn is based on a more greek pattern that is is that you begin with all of these amazing titles and, and amazing feats. And as you make your way through it, when you get to the last line is when you discover why that person is worthy of all of those great things said about him. So if you look at that passage again and you think about it from that Greek understanding of of how hymns were written, firstborn, all things created through him, he is preeminent, the fullness of God dwells in him. And what will this great hero accomplish? He will make peace, the text says. How will he make peace? How will he reconcile the world to God? Through the blood of the cross. So here's the irony of these passages. Our vision, our. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. God's vision and God's goals can be summed up in these hymns in two phrases. Number one, that all things will be reconciled to God who created them. And number two, that there will be peace. Now how will these be done? Not in the way that the world often thinks. Not by military might. Not by rulers that are able to lead with wisdom and forbearance. Not through economic success. But these things are done through Jesus Christ and the cross that is stained with His blood. Now, looking again at the first lesson we read from Corinthians a little bit earlier, 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the preaching of the cross was foolishness. That is, is that it was nonsense. Paul begins with the statement, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But Paul said "The the foolishness of God is wiser than humans, and the weakness of God is stronger than humans. And that great intellectual center of Corinth, where he's writing this letter, the cross of Christ was a stumbling block to the children of Israel. And to the Gentiles, the whole thing was just sheer idiocy. And yet this gospel of Christ and Him crucified is still foolishness to many in the world, even many in the church. Like those social gospel folks back in 1912, Today, still many are vainly trying to bring about the answer to the world's problems through social programs, through the right candidate, through justice movements, none of which I want to be heard today as attacking. Uh, The motivations are, are pure, I believe. But sometimes these movements can do some good. They can bring some justice. They can bring some equity. But we've been doing them for over a century, and even longer than that, And though some of these movements have led to improvements, like those led by Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi, others have just led to more injustice and more bloodshed. Executions without evidence, like we saw in the French Revolution, or worse, the genocide committed by the communist revolutions in Russia and China, that began by capitalizing by using the injustices that were definitely being done to the poor and the working class but using them as a way to gain power and then become oppressors you see when we try to fix human problems with human solutions we typically just get more human problems as an amateur historian in every case every single case throughout human history when the persecuted have grown tired of their bondage, they have risen up to break the chains of oppression. And with promises of a more just government and a more just system, they have only grown to oppress their former oppressors as well as any others who would challenge their newfound authority. You see, that's where the cross is different. It's not so much the cross that is the object of our veneration, but the one who took the cross as his own. You see, Christ received the worst that humanity could give, and he took it, willingly, and he transformed it. A symbol of dread and fear became a symbol of hope and salvation. The cross was created by the Roman Empire... To be a sign of its strength, its peace. Something scholars call the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome, a peace that was enforced by their might. The cross was a symbol of Rome's absolute authority over everyone under their reign. (laughs) Everyone but a preacher from Nazareth Jesus the Christ you see as Christ receives these pathetic timbers from Rome's might these timbers that were made from trees that came into existence because Jesus spoke them into existence as the word as John chapter 1 says all things come into being through Him. And Jesus makes that instrument of hate and intimidation mingled with His blood holy. <laughs> and He declares this noose, this, this gallow, this, this firing squad, this sign of peace through strength. Well, well, He takes them and he snaps those timbers like a matchstick. And in so doing, he sets the world ablaze through his resurrection. We preach Christ crucified, Paul says. This is the focal point of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a picture of blood flowing from Christ's veins as he hung on the cross. The message of shed blood is repugnant to many, and they turn their heads from such a gory sight, feeling that their delicate sensibilities will somehow be outraged. There's lots of people who will accept Christ's character, but they can't accept Christ's crucifixion. The idea of a world being saved by Christ crucified was indeed foolishness to those who were proud and boastful and thought that the wisdom of the world was vested in them. How different it is for those of us who in simple faith know Christ crucified. For us, the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God why is this why is the cross so upsetting to look at at times well i think there's a few reasons first of all i think the cross reminds us of our human brokenness our tendency to put our trust and our hope in ourselves and in our systems it reminds us that we're a part of a creation that struggles some of us struggle for power seeking remedy for the injustice we suffer and the rest of us struggle to hold on to the power knowing and fearing that when we lose it, we might begin to suffer injustice. For that is the way it is in a broken, godless, fearful, sinful world. But also in the cross, we see a glorious exhibition of God's love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul writes to the Roman Christians, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans chapter 5, verses 6-8. through eight. And in the cross we see the way to victory. Now I know all of us have had times when we felt defeated because we are held in bondage to sin and we're controlled by the power of darkness. And the cross is the instrument by which God delivers us from the penalty of our sins and from our own rebellion. Remember that hymn in Colossians? The cross of Christ is the basis of our peace. It is the means of our being reconciled to God, our eternal salvation. The goal of the cross is not only a full and free pardon, but a changed life in fellowship with God. No wonder Paul said 2,000 years ago, we preach Christ crucified. Man, that's a message the world needs to hear today. Because it's a message of hope. It's a message of peace. That what this world calls foolishness, God has been pleased to call it wisdom. What do you call it? Are you trusting in your own strength today? surrender to the strength and wisdom of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And have you accepted Him as your Lord and Savior? Do that today. If you're on our online.church platform, click on that you have accepted Christ. Let us know who you are so we can be in contact with you and share with you. If you're listening to us on one of our other platforms on Facebook or YouTube or SoundCloud or Spotify, send us an email at office at southsuburban.com so that we can come alongside you and celebrate with you as you begin this new life in Christ. I almost forgot. Remember earlier I told you that I would tell you how the story ended with the old rugged cross and why we picked it for this series? Well, that hymn was so well-loved, and because so few churches would play it, people simply began to include it in their personal worship time. Now That that might seem strange to you, but back in those days, it was not unusual for families to come together in the parlor or the front room of their home for evening worship, for Scripture, for prayer, and for songs. Well, from February 1918 to April 1920, the Spanish flu closed down churches throughout the United States. And suddenly, the only worship that Christians were able to engage in was home worship. Are you beginning to see a correlation? Songs like the Old Rugged Cross were easy to memorize, easy to sing, and they became staples of those home worship times. And they were later dubbed parlor hymns because they were prominently sung during family worship and the parlors of people's homes. Now, you know what's so amazing? The first time the old rugged cross was ever sung in completion, before it was sung in public worship, was in a parlor in a parsonage, which is a house where a pastor lives, just before the service. And from that parlor, when it was first sung after having been written, it became the staple in home worship throughout our nation during that great pandemic then. The reason we picked this hymn was to encourage you, to encourage you in the cross and to encourage you in this pandemic that for us Christians, worship is a way of life. Don't neglect your discipline of worship. Do it in your homes. Read Scripture. Pray sing, and thank you for inviting us into your parlor to hear again this great hymn of the faith. Merciful God, open our hearts to the wisdom of the cross that we might be transformed, that we might claim the victory you give through sacrifice, and that we might abandon our desire for power, wealth, and greed and cling only to the timbers of the cross made holy by the blood of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.